0: Tonight, I'm very pleased to welcome a group of very passionate and um, people from diverse backgrounds who are working toward the same goal, which is to eliminate uh, lost fishing gear or ghost gear from our ocean. So please help me in welcoming Kurt Lieber, Dick Ogg, Kirsten Gilardi, and David Stover. So I'm gonna turn it to you, Dick, to start us off, just to give us a little background on who you are and why you're here.
1: Um, my name is uh, Dick Og, and I'm a commercial fisherman in Bodega Bay. I have a fishing vessel by the name of Karen Jean, and we fish for salmon, crab, albacore, and black cod.
2: Uh, my name is David Stover. I'm a co-founder of Bareo. We started a project about six years ago to collect discarded fishing nets from fishermen, primarily in South America right now. And we um, turn that material into a raw material for companies to make products out of.
3: I'm Kurt Lieber, uh, President and Founder of Ocean Defenders Alliance, Um, I've been removing abandoned commercial fishing gear since uh, 2000, we're a nonprofit here located in Southern California.
4: Uh, Kirsten Gilardi, um, I'm a wildlife veterinarian, I work up at UC Davis, and I started the California Lost Fishing Gear Recovery Project about 12 years ago, work with commercial fishermen to recover gear out of the coastal ocean here in California.
0: Great, so thank you very much for joining us. Um, So we need to start out with the question of what is ghost gear. Some of you may have heard it, the term ghost gear. Some of you may have heard derelict gear or lost fishing gear. Um, So Kirsten, can you give us a little background on what that is? What does that mean?
4: Yeah, um, so you're absolutely right. It gets called a number of different things. Um, Ghost fishing gear seems to be the term that is used um, kind of around the world to refer to fishing gear, whether it's um, fishing gear that's been put in the ocean for by fishermen who make their living from fishing, to recreational, for folks who are fishing just for um, the sheer joy of it. It's gear that um, is is no longer being deployed for the purpose of fishing, so it's either been abandoned, it's been intentionally discarded, thrown away into the ocean. It's been lost, and there are a lot of reasons for why and how gear gets lost in the ocean. So it's technically um, just a catch-all term for fishing gear that is really not being actively used by a fisher, um, no matter what kind of uh, gear it is or where the fisher is working in the world.
0: And Why does that matter?
4: Why does why why does why do we need to
0: remove ghost gear? Mm.
4: So I think we're we're all um, passionate about this subject because um, you know many of you are probably here tonight because you care about the ocean. Uh, you m- may or may not have been following really what's kind of a groundswell of momentum in the around the world for the problem of debris in the ocean. You know s- stuff that we as humans have um, allowed to get into the ocean um, and it doesn't belong there. Uh, fishing gear is one form of marine debris. Um, as people who are enthusiastic about wildlife and care about conservation and about um, a pristine ocean, um, fishing gear, and whether it's ghost fishing gear or whatever you want to call it, it, it it does have an impact on the ocean, whether it's um, entangling or entrapping marine life, in some cases actually um, affecting the fish that the fishermen themselves would like to be able to have the chance to harvest for their own livelihoods. Um, it, so it, it entraps and entangles marine life. It um, alters habitats. So you can imagine, and I've, if you've been here today, you've seen many, many tanks and exhibits that really give you such a wonderful picture of what the ocean looks like underwater and the and the rocky reef habitats. And if you can imagine one of those rocky reefs, that's kind of covered in a big purse se net or something that's permanently altered that reef. And that reef is complex and is the home for millions of organisms. So um, ghost fishing gear has impacts on multiple different levels. It's, just not, it's not just about its impacts to, to marine life, it's, it's also habitat, but it also impacts fishermen themselves. So um, Dick will be able to talk about the fact that losing gear is a, is a, um, is a hardship for fishermen themselves cost them a lot of money, cost a lot and lost opportunity. So,
0: so that's a great segue. So Dick, we're going to put you on the spot as our fisherman representative, representative no pressure. <laughs> um, so can you talk a little bit about, as Kirsten was saying, you know, how does it impact fishermen? How does gear get lost in the first place? And and how does it impact you guys?
1: I, I'd have to speak primarily about the crab fishing industry. Um, our, uh, our gear gets lost based uh, on weather conditions, uh, tidal movements. Um, uh, the, the, the buoys themselves can go underwater. Uh, the currents can drive them down. We can't find them. Uh, it gets, we continually move our gear as we pick it up. It moves from point A to point B and across and back and forth. So we have a tendency to uh, miss a pot now and again, or it gets dragged away by by debris, and it's an expensive it's an expensive loss. I mean, each pot that we lose is about two hundred and fifty dollars, and so over time, you know, that can be pretty you know expensive. Um, It's it's also something that we're concerned about in terms of vertical lines, and we don't want additional vertical lines in the water uh, to potentially entangle other animals. So it's something that we we are definitely concerned about and we're working to uh, recover as much as we can.
0: So can you give us some examples of what the fishermen are doing to recover the gear?
1: Um, when the season is over and the, uh, we're allowed to go back and pick up the additional gear, uh, we are, we, we typically will go out, find lost pots, bring them in, and bring them back to the dock. Now, ask that question again, please.
0: Some examples of what you guys are doing to recover the gear.
1: To recover the gear? Um, it's, it's a voluntary thing right now, um, and we... We basically uh, go out on our own and, and you know pick up stray pots that we see and are notified by other individuals um, where these pots are and where we're able to pick them up. And so we go pick them up and we bring them back.
0: And so that ties into, so we're looking at some of the solutions. And one of the solutions is removal. And that's what you guys are doing. And that's something you guys started working on with Kirsten, right? Yes. So, Can you talk a little bit more about that project that you did with the, the fishermen that you're continuously working on with the fishermen?
1: Right, uh, I think that was probably about five or six years ago that we started this uh, uh, Kirsten uh, came and helped us promote that that uh, pot recovery program um, the there was funds available to help uh, develop a, a program with our association where we paid individuals to bring these pots back and then the pots were then sold back to the fishermen themselves. So it's, it's kinda, uh, you know, it was a monetary gain for the guys that didn't have an opportunity to say fish salmon, uh, in the off season. And it was a way to help promote them, uh, you know, financially uh, when they didn't have any other fisheries to go to.
0: And do you want to add to that, Kristen?
4: Yeah. Um, I think so when I first approached Dick and his um, his fellow fishermen at Bodega Bay, we, we were coming into that after spending many years um, primarily down here in the Southern California Ocean using grant funds to hire commercial fishermen to... Uh, get in the water. These are urchin harvesters, so they they make their living on on gear, dive gear. Um, really, really great at working underwater for many hours. And so we'd hire them to recover um, nets and a lot of lobster traps. Um, and uh, with that effort, which included a lot of going out and finding funding to make that happen, r- r- pulled you know over 120 tons of gear out of the water so far. Um, have also had these guys have pulled a lot of you know t- toilets and tires out of the water, too, but that's a different story. Um, but I think the motivation f- from our end was you know they're clearly c- the fishermen themselves are the are doing the work we're making it possible, but they're doing the work and wouldn't it be nice to develop a system that could start paying for itself because to be honest it's, it can be sort of tiring writing grant proposals all the time, as Kurt knows he's nodding his head so thought, is there a way to start making this a little bit more financially sustainable, and why, why shouldn't the fishermen themselves be you know earning? the money, uh, making the money for gear recovery. And so that's when we approached Dick and with some funding from NOAA, from the federal government, we were able to create a program where we were able to subaward some funds to his fishermen's Association. They used those funds to pay people like Dick to re- bring in um, Dungeness crab pots that were still in the ocean after the season. And then the association itself sold those traps back to the original owner. And in that way, we kind of made it into something a little bit more financially sustainable. And what's very cool is our, just our motivation to try to make that a little bit more financially sustainable turned into an effort by the fishermen themselves to to propose legislation to make it a permanent program. So now it's actually written into the Department of Fish and Game Code that there will be a Dungeness crab gear retrieval program that's mandated by the state by law and will facilitate fishermen like Dick and his, his colleagues to, to recover gear legally and to do that at, you know, without it costing an arm and a leg to be out there in the water. That's a terrible term to, add to use one
1: for one fish more thing free. About that too. Yes. Um, you know, this isn't something that we didn't do before. Um, it's it, it it's always been important to us, and we've uh, for years brought the gear back for other fishermen. Um, everybody wants to help each other. It's just that this is a a you know, uh, an incentive that, that, you know, helps drive us to do a little bit more, to reach out a little bit more and try a little harder. So it's, it's much appreciated. You know, uh, Kirsten's help has been fantastic.
0: So, and this is wonderful. So we know that the fishermen are taking a leadership role in helping to recover the gear um, and take the ghost gear out of the environment. But we also need um, recruitment in the communities. And that's what Kurt's really been working on and spearheading is um, getting the communities involved. So Kurt, do you want to talk a little bit about what you've been doing?
3: Yeah, what I'm doing is slightly different than what Kirsten's doing. Um, I I work primarily with the uh, lobster fishery here, and I have permits with the Department of Fish and Wildlife, as well as NOAA, to go into MPAs and different areas where uh, stuff gets dragged to or it finds its way into. But we also go out into local waters with the local dive community uh, to search and, and find this stuff. So ours is really laborious. Uh, we have uh, a 55-foot boat, we have uh, four scooters, uh, underwater uh, propulsion uh, vehicles that uh, the divers can use to go out and locate this stuff. So it's really um, time-consuming to say the least, uh, dangerous to a degree, but uh, it, it's, it takes a special skill to do what we're doing. And uh, I just have been fortunate enough to meet a lot of really dedicated divers. There's a couple of them here in the, in the audience that have uh, given up significant parts of their, their lives to, to do this. They know how important it is. And when you start talking about uh, the damage this, this gear does, I mean, what drove me initially was the kelp. That, that's what I really wanted to see, the kelp come back. And knowing that the lobsters eat the urchins, and the urchins are feeding on the, on the, the kelp, I thought that, well, we can do two things at one time, or you know, gain two things here at one time. We're helping the lobsters uh, propagate and live longer and bigger, hopefully, as well as they're taking care of the environment by eating the urchins. So that's just a, kind of a, a loop of, about what drives us to do what we're doing.
0: And can you talk about some of the other community groups that you've been engaging, like divers and and other
3: groups? (laughs) Well, my history goes back a long way. Uh, I started volunteering in uh, 1983 with the Marine Forest Society, which Kirsten and I were talking about a little bit. Uh, It was a a misguided effort. We were planting tires in the ocean to try to get kelp to attach to it, and it became a nightmare, an absolute uh, disaster because... We didn't have them secured to the uh, ocean floor very well, and when the storms came in, even though the kelp had attached to the tires, the tires washed up on the beach, and Kirsten came along with her group, and they cleaned it up. So I'm guilty there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tried my best.
0: But, but you guys go out, though, and you work with divers like Dave here, um, and they go out and they do outreach with the community, right?
3: Yeah, we do. Uh, tons of talks it's like a couple times a week we're out in fact i was just in schools uh, you know we're, we're trying to educate the kids not uh not just the adults on what's going on but the younger generation really needs to be aware of what's going on and our uh, tack there is to show them the beauty of what's going on down here and uh, so few of these kids get to the beaches And I'm just, this is my way of getting them excited about it, showing really good videos and uh, showing them what's in their own backyard.
0: That's great. That actually came up yesterday in in the power of um, engaging kids um, about the ocean. So I think that's really wonderful that you guys are doing that. Um, So circling back to Dick, just to talk a little bit. So we talked about um, some of the efforts that you guys are doing to help to recover the gear. But can you talk a little bit about what fishermen are doing to reduce incidence of lost gear are there any best practices that you guys have in play as a community uh,
1: the the th- one of the things that we're looking at right now we're tr- we're working with uh, some gear innovators uh regarding gps type buoy systems that will help locate lost gear and um that would be, that'd be incredibly advantageous to us because many times when the gear gets outside of our lines and we lay this gear in a very straight line that when it gets outside a few hundred yards, we don't see it and it gets lost. If we had these GPS buoys, they would help locate exactly where this lost gear is and we'd be able to recover it and that's, that is something that we're working on um, now to try and get this uh, established and be uh, something that we can use all the time. Uh, is that, did that answer yeah, the question? No, that's okay. Up. Thank you.
0: So what would it take, though, to, to implement something like that? So who's paying for that? Is that the fishermen that are paying for that? Is that something that you're getting government support for? What would it take for you guys be, to be able to implement that?
1: uh as as soon as it's practical um it 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 would be great to have grant funding i mean if we could get some kind of support because it's it's going to be an additional cost that the fishermen are going to have to burden and um it's it's already tough enough as it is so it it would be it would be great to to have some additional help someplace
5: great
0: Um, It's for a good cause. Um, So now David's been quiet over here, so we're going to turn to him. So uh, Boreo is tackling this from a very different perspective. Well, we kind of heard about the business and economic perspective. So these guys are working in South America with an economic incentive to get fishermen to turn in um, their old fishing gear. So can you elaborate a little bit more on that?
2: Yeah. Um, we When we were talking earlier, and I was just, just listening into the conversation, obviously the, the fishing industry is very dynamic, the types of fish that you're catching, the type of gear that you're using, but there's a parallel to what's going on with all the plastic in the ocean, because there's an issue with waste that's accumulating, and then there's an issue with waste going into the ocean, so... Um, There's really a two-pronged approach. One is cleaning up what's out there, and two is helping to prevent more plastic from getting into the ocean. So our programs are primarily focused on the second uh, approach, which is preventing more from getting in. Um, Obviously, with fishing gear, all types of fishing gear, it can be lost, there can be complications with the gear um, and other reasons why it gets into the water. Um, There is mismanagement, and we see it in South America where... Uh, the landfills are privatized, so quite expensive to dispose of material. There are not a lot of great options for material at the end of life. It's a burden for a lot of fishermen. Um, and so we started talking to fishermen about collecting those nets back. And um, and now we're actually talking to some of the companies making the fishing gear and proposing that we can incentivize fishermen at the end of life to collect that gear back so that um, doesn't have to go to a landfill, doesn't have to sit in a field, doesn't have to be disposed of. And so our business is primarily working with fisheries to provide an end of life incentive in the form of financial incentives to take the old gear back. And then we work with companies to recycle that and put it into products to extend the life. Um, we're well aware that recycling is not the answer to all the world's problems. We need to stop making new things. But for fishing gear, it's, it's a really complex issue, um, similar to, to all types of plastic. There's different types of gear. It's made from different materials. And so our project is relatively narrow focus, but we're a small team. Um, but we do see an opportunity to, one, inspire other people to come up with solutions for gear, uh, inspire the the fishing net manufacturers to make the gear differently. Uh, and that's, that's kind of our core focus right now.
0: So can you talk a little bit more about those end products that you're turning these nets into? What kind of fun things are you making? Yeah,
2: so our, our first idea was to make a skateboard. Um, and the, one of the co-founders in the team, he actually has experience as an industrial designer and engineer. So we started out as really a skateboard company. We were primarily designing skateboards to be made from fishing nets and relatively niche product. And an interesting dilemma was that we found that even we we calculated that even if we made every skateboard that's ever made in the year in one year for the whole entire world out of nets, we wouldn't be able to use the amount of nets that we were collecting every year in South America. So that quickly realized that uh, the mission was really focused on keeping nets out of the ocean. So if we were going to accomplish that, we needed to work with companies that use much larger amounts of material. And so our focus now. Um, Is to help bigger companies that have to rely on on these materials Um, Give them an option to use a recycled source Um, So anything from an office chair that you sit in Uh, we're looking at some car parts we're looking at um, outdoor gear where companies can be given an option to not use new plastic uh, which would fuel which does fuel fossil fuel exploration, has other impacts with emissions, but you can use a reclaimed source and then the added benefit is that you're helping fisheries uh, through incentives and end-of-life solutions for the gear.
0: And is the recycled gear then an economic benefit for those businesses? It's gonna be cheaper than the newer?
2: It's still developing. We call it an immature commodity. Um, Certainly the work um, that Kirsten and and Kurt and, and Dick are working on, the actual recovery is extremely expensive. So if you, if you were looking at a per kilogram basis of that work and looking to start a business, very, very challenging. So, um, and the same is for working in the ports. So with any recycling program, you're up against transportation costs, logistics, cleaning. Um, so right now, we are the, the source of the material. Is it a premium? Um, but it's put into products where consumers are recognizing the value of the social and environmental value of that material and there is a mar- the the market is showing that there is demand um, that can support those programs.
0: That's great. Um, and that's really promising to hear. So there have been studies on that because I know with uh, like seafood certifications the recognition rate is actually relatively low. Um, so it's always promising to hear that there are people willing to pay that price premium for those good products. Um, So, I guess the question now is, you know, you have a public here, you have a public that's online, and the question is, you guys are doing all of this great work, so what is it that you want these guys to take away with them? What do you want them to know about this issue, or about what you're doing, or about all of the above? Uh,
4: Well, I guess a couple takeaways, I hope you'll take away from this evening is, um, one, you know, I, I do feel very strongly that um, w- while we, w- maybe some of us tend to want to point fingers at different actors in this sort of global problem, I think really it's the fishermen and the fishing industry and the seafood industry and other industries that have the both the opportunity, the responsibility, but also there's a lot of will to do something about this, so I think that that when it comes to ghost fishing gear, I think it's essential that fishermen are involved, whether they're commercial fishermen or recreational fishermen, because I think there's a lot of first of all knowledge and experience there, um but a loss a loss also a lot of will and passion to be a part of the solution um I'm really heartened also by this, as I mentioned earlier, what seems to be some momentum growing around the issue of debris in the ocean, and not just goes fishing gear, goes fishing gear is a big part of it, but um, overall a big drive to do something about um, pollution, you know, plastic pollution, other forms of debris going into the ocean, either from land or from the sea, and, you know, even the United Nations is now involved in investing resources, time, and people, and to addressing um, sources of uh, marine debris for the ocean, including fishing gear so i'm I'm really heartened by that because I think maybe if some of these um, major international um, efforts can bring those kinds of resources and all that sort of brain power to bear upon the problem, we may see some big shifts finally in some of the policies that are um, applied, but also a little maybe a shift in philosophy that's not just you know, if you you are all you're here because you're ocean enthusiasts who love the aquarium and you're interested in this topic. But I think that when, as some of these big international organizations start to put some effort into this problem, we're going to see some some change. I'm I'm really heartened by that.
5: Okay.
2: Um I would couple of points. I mean, one, I, I think sharing knowledge, like everyone in the room has learned from. All the voices up here, I think sharing that with your peers is, is always helpful. Um, I mean, from our side, I'd say the number one thing we've learned is conscious consuming. so understand where the food you're eating is coming from, where the products that you're buying are coming from and and trying to make responsible decisions where it is economically possible. Um, you know and and I think that is as consumers, even individual consumers, we don't realize how much power we have. businesses constantly look at us and are habits and the way that we buy products and the way that we make decisions and as we shift the way we do that and we put demands on bigger companies to make products more responsibly to worry about waste streams to worry about impacts then those companies shift Um, and specifically I'd say on the fishing gear issue obviously also paying attention to local uh, initiatives trying to trying to purchase seafood locally I think in in my personal opinion I'll let Dick comment on that and that's that's a really great way to support local fisheries and then just being aware, paying attention to the issues and where you can help support organizations doing work to clean up or even something as simple as going to a beach cleanup and helping to remove some debris. I think I think we can all get involved.
1: If I had anything to, you know, to hope that you go home with is to realize that we, as a, a commercial fishing industry, uh, are are really the true stewards of the ocean. I mean, we really care about making sure that, um, that there, you know, we don't want to damage the, uh, uh, the 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 products that we're bringing to you. We want to make sure that, you
5: know,
1: uh, we're we're trying to take care and making sure that we bring stuff back and we don't leave garbage in the water and we bring we, we try to be as sustainable as possible with our with our techniques and everything. So I just would like for you to believe in us and, and realize that we're trying our best to 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 uh, bring a sustainable organic product to the public.
3: Well, Dick represents the really bright side of the fishing industry. Um, I've been involved in this for decades, and uh, the international community does not have near the awareness nor care. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I'm seeing, and I don't want to name countries, but you guys probably already know who they are, uh, they have vast fleets of these Mega ships out there that are not doing things sustainably. They're vacuuming up the oceans. They're leaving their nets in the water when they they can't discard of them because uh, they're out at sea, and they're washing up all over the world. I do a lot of work in Hawaii right now, and uh, there's a place called uh, uh, South Point on Kona. And when it was first discovered there the nets were piled so high, it was 12 feet tall, and it covered almost a mile and a half of the beach. And that's just one spot that's, you know, in the Pacific that's washing up with these nets. And I believe it's something like 60% of the uh, marine debris in the ocean right now is made up of nets. So even though Dick and his friends are doing what they can, uh, it's commendable. We have to recognize, when you're buying your fish, you have to recognize where it's coming from and what country is catching that stuff. So that's just something I want people to be aware of.
0: And the US has been widely recognized for having some of the most sustainable fisheries um, in the world, Um, so that's a plus. So buy US, California seafood. (laughs) Support Dick. Um, so uh, we decided as a group, and we're talking at dinner, and we really want to hear from you guys, and it open up to questions from you. So I hope you guys have some good questions for the panel. Can we bring up the house lights?:
6: I guess this' mostly be for David. there's so I'm seeing there's two problems. There's the accident, dental loss, and then there's the purposeful end of life, just throw it overboard and then go buy new equipment problem. So you're trying to get the nets at the end of life before they dispose of them, Uh, just throw them into the ocean because it's cheaper. Couldn't there be some sort of a, the people that sell fishing nets, do a trade-in like pop bottles you get a, a little refund on? Because a lot of these materials they're using now, you know, it's not the old manila biodegradable stuff, there are different proprietary plastics out there, and every net fisherman has a, a better product than the other uh, net maker. And so they're proprietary, so they'd have to go back to that uh, retailer, you might say. And so th- there's kind of a cycling process with each brand that's out there. Is, is, would that be the goal?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely accurate. I mean, as far as the disposal goes, I, I don't want to make it sound like every gear that's uh, not lost is of in the ocean. Certainly it happens. Um, primarily what we see in South America, there's a lot of illegal dumping. So the nets might be in a, a legal landfill site somewhere. They rarely make it to a, a privatized landfill because it's expensive. So the issue is that um, it's difficult for the fishermen to work with the nets because it's usually uh, a burden on them to purchase new nets. The old nets could be in bad condition, uh, hard to transport, lack of time. There's There's a number of things that go into it. Um, So, but they are purchasing the nets from a relatively few number of net manufacturers in a country. So, take Chile for an example. A lot of the nets are actually made locally. So They'd be spun in country. The yarn, which it's made from, you're absolutely right, predominantly nylon, high-density polyethylene, polypropylene. Those are the three primary forms of, of material and you can get a variety of color and size and thickness. Um, And we have started to engage with those net manufacturers. There are some leasing models that are happening where um, the net manufacturers uh, agree to perform service on the nets over a period of time, um, and they accumulate a lot of waste, so we're talking to those manufacturers. I mean, we see that as a great model, um, as in the fisheries pay like a constant rate. The nets can be serviced, they can be replaced, and then the old material can go to a recycling program. Um, And then the other model would just be a a simple um, hand-in-your-net-at-the-end-of-life-for-an-incentive, so basically for cash. Um, But the idea is that for us to have impact, you know, we've proven in uh, 23 or so communities in Chile that fishermen are engaged. Like Dick was saying, they they do care about um, having an environmental um, point to disposal of their material. And we think there's an opportunity as a global community and a global um, practice where the people making the material and putting that into practice can be involved in the end of life, uh, and you can really create a circular economy for the for the gear.
4: Can I add just one quick thing to yes. that? To that, or um, I think sometimes people have been surprised to hear about our project, at least that we've actually repatriated the gear back to the fishermen for the most part so we did a lot we've done a lot of lobster trap cleanup as um kurt has mentioned and you know the, all every lobster fisherman sort of sets up their trap in a different way so our fishermen we work with could really recognize whose trap was whose and we'd give those traps back to the fishermen and people would say why are you doing that they lost them in the first place well they didn't lose them on purpose necessarily especially down here there's a lot of Buoys get chopped off of lines by passing, you know, sport boats and things. So, they were grateful to get them back. They're going to use them. That saves them, you know, money out of pocket that they would have used to go and replace that trap. Um, built awareness for the program. Built a lot of goodwill. So then we could start getting calls from the fishery saying, "Hey, I, you know, I'm so bummed. I lost ten traps off of such and such a point last week when that storm came through." If you guys, I'm just letting you know they're out there in case you've got divers in the water, um, be great to get those out of the water because I can't find them. you know. Because of course there's no buoy at the surface that fishermen can't pull up the trap and they just keep fishing, especially if they're baited, especially if it's a lobster trap, lobster crabs like to eat dead things, right? So anything that goes in the trap and dies just, just continues, the trap just continues to fish really. So, um, so we gave a lot of gear back to fishermen.
0: Yeah, and that's something we were talking about over dinner is that, you know, each of these communities is different. They all, it's like, it's like a a fingerprint, right? And so you have to approach each issue in each community with different potential solutions. You can't just have a one size fits all. And here you can see that there are different ways to accomplish the same goal. I know we had some other questions out here.
7: Wow. This is a very interesting subject. I had no background whatsoever, and I want to commend you for all the information that you shared today. And um, this is probably going to be a question initially with one point, but I think there might be several points mixed together. Are there consequences nationally or internationally if people are found dumping the gear And when you mentioned about finding the gear, I kind of thought about some of the lectures I've seen here at the aquarium where they tag some of the marine life or they tag the birds, they know which way they migrate. So I was wondering if there's a way to tag tag them when the person purchases the gear, okay? Um, Like when you get a driver's license, okay, kind of thing. Is there a way to have the gear um, tagged with the chip, so you know exactly who bought, who bought it, and perhaps that chip could have a GPS kind of thing in it. Now, I know I kind of asked you a, a question with three parts to it, but my brain got to thinking, so that's what I thought I'd share with you. Thank you.
1: Well, to, to yeah, no,
4: I mean, you are thinking exactly along the right lines, and there's a lot of work being done right now on how to mark gear so that it's identifiable to the fishery that it came from, um, maybe even to the fisher. Um, and, and Dick has been working with um, uh, engineers to develop um, improvements on the buoys for gear, trap gear, to allow the fishermen to be able to track it if it, if it gets moved. By the force of the ocean or by a boat to somewhere else they can they can track it you may might want to speak to that, but you know you're absolutely right that that's a big part of the conversation on what kinds of modifications could we be applying to the gear and and in fisheries to make it possible to 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 trace this gear back to its origin fishery and and you know we're talking about gear that is moving fast distances i um I've spent a lot of time in the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands, and my brother-in-law was on—he uh, on, was out on um, Wake Atoll, he, doing other kind of work a couple of years ago, and picked up a tag from the California Dungeness crab fishery on the beach on Wake Island. So it gives you a sense for how far this gear moves around. So you know, gear that's lost off of the Southeast Asian coast is washing up in the north shore of northern shores of the Austra- Austra- Australia. So. Um, and it's not always easy to tell where those, where the gear is coming from, and if there, are, if we had that information, then perhaps could be going back and making management recommendations to those fisheries about how not to, to lose that gear. So it's a great question.
1: I, you know, I can comment on on the identification aspect of this. Um, we are required to have tags within the pots that have our phone numbers and the fishing vessel on it, so that. If the pot is found, we can you know, then bring it back to the rightful owner. We'll also, all our uh, buoys are marked with our, um, our license numbers, and they have individual pot tags on them. So the gear itself is identifiable, and typically what we do is, if it is found, or, you know, however it's found, we, we bring it back in and then we're able to bring it back to the person. So, you know, we've thought about, uh, in fact, I think with this GPS system, they've talked about putting chips in those that, uh, again, would identify the individual, but, uh, you know, the tags that are, that are man- mandated by the state in the pot is something that you know, we've utilized for years to be able to identify the, the person who has that bot.
2: I just add one point, great, great question. Um, in addition to the tagging, I know another thing that's being talked about uh, globally, and the, uh, we've sat on some meetings for the Global Ghost Gear Initiative, which is an initiative between industry, environmentalists, companies to talk about solutions. And in addition to tagging, one idea, um, I believe the scientific term is mass balance, but the idea is that all of the weight coming in goes out, and this idea that you could track and log gear by fishery, um, and it it isn't meant to penalize the fishermen. Like the, I think that's really important is that, and Dick can speak to that, but the idea is that if gear is lost, it's a voluntary um, a voluntary acknowledgement of that, and that can be logged, and then organizations working on collection can mark that. Um, we personally, uh, as working in these communities, see that as a very valuable tool to, to knowing really how much waste there is out there. If you look at all the new gear pur- purchased by fishing ports around the, around the world, even by boat, if we're able to track and log the amount of gear coming in and coming out, you help the fishermen manage, okay, here's the waste, there's an incentive to get rid of it. If it's lost, then we can report that. And really your goal is that at the end of the year, you know, whatever comes in equals whatever goes out, and you know, okay, maybe there might be some gear lost, some gear is recycled, and they're going to keep fishing with some gear. So it's a really good question.
0: Yeah, and I think, so one of the key themes you keep hearing here is is not to vilify or point fingers, right? And I think, not just with this issue, but, you know, in general, we're going to get a lot more, what is that old saying, you catch a lot more with honey than you do with vinegar? Um, Trust works both ways, right? So if we keep going after big bad industry or the fishermen saying you're the bad guy, what incentive do they have to come to the table and and work as a a team? And this um, global initiative is a good example where you have all these different stakeholder groups working together. um, And it's really important for us to do just that, to work together and and again, having that trust and transparency on all sides um, of how we work together and not point fingers and blame the other party. I think you had a question up front, did you?
8: Um, hello, uh, I just wanna thank you again for all the efforts that you're uh, doing. It's really amazing to hear this much work and thought being uh, put into this issue. Um, my question for you, and this is sort of like a general question, is how much of the, let's say, the battle for, um, you know, pushing forward this, um, era of sustainability and uh, just sort of um, putting more emphasis on keeping uh, this major pollutant out of the oceans. How much of it is more of a legislative battle versus um, sort of a more soft kind of diplomacy working uh, with all these various groups? Want to
0: start?
4: Wow, I don't, I don't think there's a, it's not one or the other, it's both, and it's, um, it's, there's not a one-size-fits-all approach. I think I'd, in some cases legislation can work wonders. I spend a lot of time working in East Central Africa on something completely unrelated to ghost fishing gear, and the country where I work, um, the leader of the country just said we're not going to have s- plastic bags in our country. No more plastic bags are allowed. In fact, they even tell you on the airplane as you're getting off the airplane, if you have plastic bags, leave them on the airplane because they're not allowed in this country. And as a result, it's an incredibly clean country, and you just have to go to the border to their neighbors, and it's a completely different scene. So in that situation, legislation or at least rulemaking, making made a huge difference in an entire country. That's in Rwanda. Rwanda. Um, but in other situations, the policy doesn't, you know, law, lawmakers aren't, Necessarily pushing the agenda, and um, it's people who are directly affected by these problems that will make um, make huge change. So I think it's—I really think the answer is both. But I'm sorry, that's probably not what you're after. But I do think that it, it takes both, it, and also takes the community level people to put the pressure on the lawmakers as well, right?
0: Yeah, and I, I think Kirsten, you alluded to this earlier too. It's again, it's yeah, it's not one size fits all, and. In order to make strong policy that's going to have an impact, you also need more information. And so what you were talking about with marking the buoys, and if you know exactly where it's coming from, you can start to develop policy around that. So you've got that chicken and egg scenario where you need more information before you can create effective policy. So that's not the, I mean, the broad spectrum. There are certainly areas where you could potentially create policy, but it's complicated.
4: And I think um, with the f- fishermen, and I'm sure Kurt's doing the same, and we've take a lot of data on what the skier is doing in the ocean. You know, we're, we're counting what's in the traps or caught in the nets. We're counting the amount of seafloor that it's covering. So um, the fishermen who've been recovering Dungeness crab traps are doing the same. So that all serves to form an evidence base for the impact and, and helps to justify all the work that we're doing um, in collaboration with with the fleets and with communities.
0: Yeah, and, and the more data you have, the better it is, right? Because if you just work off of you know, not having enough data, you could potentially put too much strain on the fishing community, and then we lose a source of well-managed seafood that will now be imported from elsewhere with who knows what impacts. Um, so there's a really important balance there. Other questions?
5: I have two two parts. Um, what is the lifetime of a net?
3: Uh, I've been told by scientists, a uh, nylon net is going to be in there for 650 years. Polypropylene... Not,
5: not that, that, I mean the use. Oh, I'm sorry, use. Uh, I, I don't have an answer to that. Okay.
2: I, I, again, Would you know that
5: answer, Dick? It does, I guess it doesn't really matter. I know the I, building I, industry in the state answer. of...
2: Yeah, <laughs> I have an opinion on that. Um, I guess similar to Kirsten's answer that, like, obviously there's a wide range, so it's, it's not going to clarify much. But, I mean, there's cases, like, we were in Indonesia on a project this year and had talked to fisheries that refer to certain nets as single-use nets because the, the monofilament gill net rips so easily that sometimes they don't make it through uh, one, one session. And uh, we see that in South America as well. So you have small, small gear that can last maybe a couple weeks to a couple months. And the larger gear, even if it doesn't tear, rip, um, or really sustain damage that causes it to be repaired, it does break down in the sun and in the salt water. And so maybe it, w- it will last five to seven years, potentially, um, in, in, um, in the best conditions. But from what we see, even relatively small fisheries, it's not, when we first approached it, we were wondering how often they have to purchase new nets, like this was something they waited, um, at least in South America, for the nets to rip, and then they bought, and now we've kind of see it, a lot of fisheries treat gear more as a consumable, so there's monthly or, or yearly, depending on how big the fishery is, orders of gear that's coming in, and so that's how we're starting to get a handle on how much waste is being generated, so yeah, I mean this, the ocean's at a dynamic environment. Fishing is a complicated practice. It, it's gonna depend on, is it drag netting? Is it purse seining? Is it gill netting? I mean, there's a lot of different spectrums there. Certainly, certainly traps and lines are, are differently with, with buoys as well. Um, but overall, um, I think you're, you're, you should expect that you have to implement new gear and so there's waste generated every year in, in fisheries. That's
5: crazy, that's just insane. It really magnifies the problem. Um, The second part is the state of California, and I understand that we're dealing with a global community, and so to get global people on board is like, especially with the variances of how involved people are in sustainability, I can't even imagine how difficult. But the state of California with the building industry has put the recycling costs on the purchase. And then when you come back to replace whatever it is, you turn your thing in, no charge, but when you purchase whatever it is, the cost for recycling is on it. I don't know if that would work. Do you think that would work? Or is that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I actually, I favor my personal opinion. I I think that if if you make the financial burden on the fishermen lower, So if you go towards like a leasing model or a way to make the payments go down every year and you have a a way to financially incentivize them to bring back the gear, then they look at the gear at the end of life as money, not as waste. And I think that's the real switch that we need. I mean, it's the same with all plastic, right? I mean, look at um, if you look at the recycling rates for plastic bottles in communities or counties that, that have a redemption, then it, they're really high. If you look at rates in countries or counties where they, they don't pay a redemption fee to bring it back, then you, you don't see many bottles. And so I think that practice, similar to your suggestion, um, it, it can be effective, but I, I think specifically for the fishing industry, if we find ways to work with them and financially incentivize them, then the, the traction and the success will be much higher.
7: Well, I got to thinking some more. And you mentioned about going into the school with the children who are our future. And I want to find out, when you go to the school with the subject matter, how do you bring it to them? And how are you getting them involved? Because children have minds that are just amazing and so creative. And I want to find out if you have children involved Because when I think of climate change and I see this 14 year old on the TV and young people on the TV and they're so enthusiastic to do something about climate change, are you getting the children involved and how are you getting them involved nationally and internationally? Because I think that's something that that really needs to be done. Thank you.
3: Well, I, I'm, I'm local here, and you know I, what I do here is it can't be relayed over the, uh, the entire planet, but we're a small organization, and what I'm doing is, again, trying to get the, the kids excited about the oceans. Uh, that's my primary thing first, and then I draw them into the damages, that certain aspects like plastics. I, I cover the whole gamut of things. I'm not just specifically focusing on, on the fishing industry. Um, Trying to get them aware of what's going on detrimentally in our environment and then uh, I can't take them out on my boat But what I can do is we do beach cleanups and harbor cleanups, so I get them involved in that aspect of it and then that Every time you get them near the water it generates whole new conversations and it's just amazing to hear the thoughts that come out of these young people when they see an octopus stuck in a, a tube, you know, why why don't you want me to throw that tube back in the water? It's his home. Well then you can have the debate or the, the conversation about it's polluted, it's it, it's leaching toxins into their body as they're in there. So. I, I, education just has a way of resonating with kids for forever and that's, that's our goal as uh, here as well as in Hawaii and it's working really well.
0: All right, Any, one more question? Yeah.
8: Hello, um, while well, I was thinking, um, I also remembered um, sort of an interesting phenomenon with plastic is that um, at least with plastic pollution is that it does tend to sort of um, attract one another like we all know of the great Pacific garbage patch and the like I was wondering um, when you go out and do reclamation work with um, I guess in particular nets and like other sorts of equipment how much other plastic pollution are you also bringing up with that like how much have you been like I feel like this is sort of a double pronged spirit. is like you can also use reuse the nets like in a more of a traditional fishing sense but you can also potentially use these to collect and gather more plastic pollution uh, I was just sort of wondering um, if there were any ideas or any movement on that front
3: I'll, I'll just answer quickly and I'm sure Kirsten has some more to add to it but um, uh, some people are doing this uh, fishing for plastics so they're uh, and, and I haven't done this yet but I've been involved with this. This isn't my group. I'm involved with some other organizations that are doing it. They uh, contract with the fishermen to go out about two or three times a year. This is happening over in uh, North Carolina. And the guys are going out with their fishing nets, and they're being paid. And they have a tournament. They're seeing how much can we pull up. And the interesting thing about that is when they're pulling this plastic up in their nets, they're saying, oh, my word. I threw that in here. You know, they're finding out that it, it's coming back to them. So uh, it, it's just one, one uh, example of what people are doing to try to educate the fishermen, get them to use their boats, and uh, you know, pay them at the same time.
0: And isn't that, is that a NOAA marine debris program?
3: That is not part of the marine oh, debris, no, marine no. Debris. no.
0: All right, Any, one more. Last question. No pressure, Dave.
3: (laughs) So y'all have described a huge spectrum of things that are going on and it occurred to me, I haven't heard anything about funding. Where are each of you and organizations getting funding to support all of this
5: information? Or work?
4: Uh, Funding for us has come from um, it's primarily been government. It's either been the, the state of California or it's been the federal funders like NOAA and the Marine Debris Program. Um, there's a certain amount of, you know, if there's, um, if, if industry does any kind of development off the coast, they have to mitigate for unavoidable impacts to the seafloor. They have to pay under the California the Coastal Act, they, they have to pay for the damage they're causing to the ocean. And so some of those funds become available for this kind of work. Um, but it's been primarily government grants and um, both at the state and federal level. And from, at least for our program, everything from the Wildlife Conservation Board to the NOAA Marine Debris Program to the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, um, Coastal Commission mitigation funds. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. David, how did your program get started? What was the investment like? Yes,
2: yeah, so we're a benefits corporation in California, so we are for profit, um, focused on building p- products. So predominantly, we link funding from our corporate partners. So Patagonia is a our biggest funder. Um, they're focused on pulling recycled material through their supply chain. So we're fortunate to have their backing, but obviously, we didn't start there. Um, we didn't. We had to prove ourselves. So we were fortunate to get to get small um, government grants in Chile. They saw the value in, in starting the program there. Um, for pilot projects in country, we just started in Peru last year. So we haven't actually um, shipped any material out of Peru. Most of that's been feasibility studies, uh, working with the fishermen. Um, we partner with WWF on that one, and they received a grant from the US State Department to, um, to help get the programs off the ground. We've gotten uh, university grants, relatively small grants in, in the beginning to get started, and then we ran some crowdfunding ourselves through our products. So we've we've kind of bootstrapped it together to date, and trying now to create a business out of it where consumers buy products from companies, companies purchase raw material, and then we can work with that uh, the raw material price to basically um, to fund the supply chain.
0: And that's that's a very hard thing to do. So kudos. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, everybody. Thank you to our panelists for coming out here. So before I forget, um, join us on June 11th when writer and exhibit developer Paul Erickson will discuss his book, Don't Mess With Me, The Strange Lives of Venomous Creatures. Ooh, fun. Um, So thank you and have a good night.